with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Coming up on today's show, it's the Friday edition, so that means we will have the Friday panel near the bottom of the hour with hot topics. But to start today's program, here is Monday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hello, I'm Dosh Block. They shouldn't be going to a house with, with mental issue guns. For what? They're going to fight a war? Why are they bringing guns to deal with a mental issue? That is DeAndre Campbell's father, talking about how police shot his 26-year-old son in April after DeAndre called them for help. DeAndre is part of a growing list of people who have been killed by police in Canada. Since 2018, 97 people have died in encounters with officers. And we only know this because of CBC's Deadly Force database, which brings together 20 years of information about deaths at the hands of the police. Today, Fifth Estate co-host Mark Kelly joins us to talk about what those numbers reveal about the role of race and mental health in fatal police encounters, and why 2020 is on track to be an especially deadly year. This is Frontburner. Hello, Mark. Hi, Josh. So, in the last two and a half years, nearly 100 people have been killed by police in Canada. Looking at that database, what stood out to you most? Yeah, it is the name after name after name of these victims that, that, that continues to pile up. And you know what really, what really struck me is despite all the attention that's being paid to police violence, both here in, in Canada and really around the world, you know, the allegations of police brutality, here we are in 2020 on track to be one of the deadliest years on record in terms of people killed in police encounters in Canada. In the first half of this year, Josh, mm -hmm. 30 people were killed by police. Now, that's typically what we average in an entire year. And even when we account for population growth in Canada, the number of deaths due to police using deadly force continue to tick upwards. And that, I just believe, has to be a wake-up call for, for law enforcement. It has to be a wake-up call for politicians. It has to be a wake-up call for all of us in the public to be aware that this is a problem that we need to deal with. And obviously, you know, behind these stats, there are real people. Mm -hmm. We have seen less action when we die. Shame. We have Shame. seen less actions for the deaths of Ija Chaudhry. Two Indigenous people were shot and killed by police in eight days. First Nations groups have identified the woman as Chantal Moore. It's Rodney Levi, uh, he was from the Mitamanagiag First Nation. Uh, and, and people that, that you have been learning more about, what has stood out to you? Well, two-thirds of the deaths when police use deadly force involve people with mental health issues, people mm. with addiction issues or, or, or both. Now, let me give you uh, an example here. Three names. Clive Mensa. Mensa died in November after being tased by police in his backyard. They had been called just after 3 a.m. for reports of a suspicious male. DeAndre Campbell, we talked about off the top there. DeAndre called 911 that day. Don't come and take someone's life when they call in for help. He shouldn't have ended up six feet under. Now when I have to walk to a graveside with my siblings, it hurts me to know that's the reason where I'm going for him. 
Idaz Chowdhury. Regional police officers shot and killed 62-year-old Ajaz Chowdhury while responding to a call about a man in mental distress. He did have a history of mental illness, but I don't think that he needed to be killed for that. In the span of about six months, those three men, all suffering from a mental illness, were killed by officers in one police department, Peel Regional Police, it's outside of Toronto. Three deaths, one force. And this is a police department that, that has a, a mental health unit that is designed to respond to, to wellness checks, to have people to, to check in on people if they're in mental distress. Now, these are the kinds of cases that are leading activists to say, like, let's defund the police, let's invest in social workers, mental health workers, to intervene in these calls, not arm police officers. That's what DeAndre Campbell's dad's been talking about. That's what families of other victims have been talking about. And these are the problems that I think the police really have to reckon with now. You are to serve and to protect, not to serve and to kill. Justice. We want whoever, was, whoever did what they did to be held accountable. It's time for us to rise up as a community, as people, and to say enough is enough. He's not the only one, and he won't be the last one, unless we stand to do something about it. Well, in a statement from earlier this summer, the Peel Regional Police Board said that while it couldn't comment on individual cases, that these deaths are a tragic reminder that there's still much work to be done. And they added that the incidents will inform the board's work on key issues, including community engagement, strategic planning, and the upcoming budget. The number of people dying during police wellness checks is you know, certainly in the spotlight right now, as you mentioned. Canada's largest mental health hospital, the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, in Toronto has called for police to stop being on the front lines of dealing with people in a mental health crisis. How does this data back up what people are, are saying, people working on the ground? Yeah, I think it's, it's an illustration of that problem. You know, we've looked at some statistics that suggest that police answer about one million mental health calls or calls involving people in mental health distress a year. One million calls a year. Wow. So you can appreciate the, the, the problems and the pressure that this puts uh, the police under. So it does beg the question. Uh, you know, should the, the people be going out armed with tasers, armed with, with guns to deal with people in mental distress? When you look at the opioid crisis and especially the, the problems that they're having out, out west, uh, you know, is it, is, should it be police going there with tasers and, and weapons to deal with people who are, are also having addiction issues? These are the illustrations of the, those calls. And that's why, you know, when people are saying we have to defund the police, well, uh, there are other calls that would say in another way to reimagine the way that policing actually plays out in our streets across the country. Is this the best way to deal with this growing mental health issue? Lots of people are saying definitely it's not up to the police. It should be up to social workers and mental health workers. The CBC database found that most of the people killed by police suffered from mental illnesses or substance abuse. But race also plays a big factor. How so? Absolutely. Well, according to our research, Indigenous people, they form about 16% of the deaths, but only 4% of the population, if we, if we look at the deaths annualized over 20 years. Black people form about 8.5% of the deaths, but only 3% of the population. 
So what we're seeing is a disproportionate number of, of black and indigenous people who are dying at the hands of police. Now, these, these are the numbers that, that, that fuel these allegations of, of systemic racism. You know, I was speaking to Scott Wortley. He's a criminologist at the University of Toronto. He's done some of his, his own uh, data research. He's shown that in Toronto, for example, a black person is 20 times more likely to die in the hands of police than a white person. He says racial bias in police forces is not solely an American issue. It's a Canadian one, too. This is an issue for Canadian society, and we can no longer kind of congratulate ourselves um, that at least we're not the United States. And the danger is that if we don't start taking these racial issues seriously, these will continue to fester. Wortley also says it's really important to collect these kinds of numbers because these numbers form of accountability for the police. So they just can't say, look, that these are anecdotal issues, that, that this isn't hard fact-based evidence. It is, and this is something that the, the politicians and the police cannot turn their backs to anymore. Right, and to be clear, for a lot of people, especially people in black and indigenous communities, this information is not surprising. No. I mean, this is a reality. Had it been, he was a white boy. Would they kill him? Would they tase him? And another testament, this is not affecting Muslim community or the brown community. We have people from different races. George Floyd, everybody identifies with George Floyd because he embodied the pain of many. And, and, this is, and this is one of the reactions that we've had when we've, we've reached out to people for comment about this. They're saying, look, folks, we've been saying this all along, but now there's actually that, that hard factual information, that, that data that we've got from this deadly force database to prove that these aren't just complaints. These aren't just appearances that there's a, a racial bias. The numbers actually back that up. Right. If you are black or indigenous, you are more likely to have a fatal encounter with police. Indeed. Yep. And what do we know about where this is happening? Well, if we look at the police services, I mean, that's the best way we can, uh, if we look at the number of deaths involving which police services, for example. So the highest number of victims, 147, come in the hands of the Mounties, the RCMP. Of course, they, they cover, you know, huge swaths of this country, not only in rural areas, but in some cities as well. And then if you break it down from there, you've got the Toronto Police Service at 57, uh, Montreal at 35, and then the Quebec Provincial Police at 34. I mean, what we're looking here is you have a concentration of deaths that involve municipal police forces in the big cities of this country. So I don't think anyone's going to find that particularly surprising. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is segment one of Monday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. We'll have segment two in a moment here on After 9. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now segment 2 of Monday Morning's Frontburner from CBC News. So, CBC put together this database because there wasn't one publicly available. I mean, why is that? Well, that's, you know, that's the, the big question, and I think it's the glaring problem, that we're collecting information that isn't being collected by police forces. Specifically, race-based information. This is something that, you know, and I've asked criminologists about this, and they said that there has been a reluctance on the part of police associations, named police unions, and police services themselves to be able to, to collect this race-based information. Hmm. Some people say it's because they don't want to know actually what's happening out there. Of course, every police force will tell you that there, there is no racial bias, that they treat everyone equally. We continue to work on becoming a modern and progressive police service. 
The Toronto Police Service is about communities, all communities. Their trust is paramount to us. Let me be clear. CPS does not tolerate racism. CBC News questioned Peel Regional Police about whether race contributed to Mensa's death. The response, quote, we expect every one of our officers to conduct themselves in a professional and ethical manner at all times. But the numbers simply don't bear that out. And that's why there had been more pressure to collect this information to inform police forces, to inform policymakers to say, look, the numbers point to a problem here when it comes to, to, to race in this country and, and people dying in the hands of police. Let's do something about it. And I think more and more, and I think certainly for the CBC, we're collecting this information to get a, a, a debate going, for, to get police to look hard at, at how they're treating people uh, in, in, their, in their jurisdictions. And we think that this number can fuel that, that, that debate. But it really is, at the end of the day, should be up to police forces to be collecting this information. But it's difficult to change policy in the absence of data. Absolutely. And that, I mean, this is why we're collecting this data to, to, to inform that, those policy changes, to inform the debates that are going on right across this country right now when people are, are, are complaining that there is systemic racism in police forces across the country. But the police do collect data after a, a fatal police shooting or a fatal police encounter, right? I mean, they, they collect data right down to what the weather is. Yeah, e even in the use of force, it doesn't even have to be a fatal encounter, Josh. I mean, th this is something, I was talking to somebody about this. They said, you know, if, if there is a, a use of force incident where somebody fired their weapon or, or a taser, for example, they used mm -hmm. that, didn't even have to end up with a fatality. You've got the police have to fill out forms and forms and forms. The weather, the light. For example, was it a cloudy day? Was it was it a sunny day? Was it at dusk? Was it at dawn? There's a list of questions that you go down, and the police have to answer these things to to be able to better understand the circumstances surrounding that that use of force or deadly force in this case. But not the simple question: What was the race of that person? Or perhaps more importantly, what did the police officer perceive to be the race of that person? I, I should say CBC has reached out to the RCMP and the Toronto and Montreal Police Departments. We heard back from all three. In, in a statement in French, the Montreal Police Department said, quote, thank you for sharing the information. Please know that these files are handled by the Independent Investigations Office. The Toronto Police Department responded in a statement that reads in part, our members are highly trained in de-escalation tactics to bring what are often complex, highly emotive, and dynamic situations to a safe end. Use of force is a last resort. And the RCMP responded as well. They actually sent a, a two-page statement, and it highlighted the de-escalation and crisis intervention training that their officers receive. Their statement reads in part, quote, Police officers are often the first responders on scene when someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. We have a critical role to play when responding and interacting with people living with mental health problems and illnesses. This database goes back 20 years with 556 victims. Yep. How have how has what we've seen in terms of the number of victims changed over the years, over those the, that 20-year that period that we've been collecting data? Well, when we look back, let's say 2002, for example, we saw a low of 14 victims. 2016, we saw a high of 40. And as I mentioned, we're on track to eclipse that number this year. And, and I think what's important here is these stats are a form of accountability. 
They cannot be dismissed as anecdotal or unfounded. And I think this needs to be the basis for discussion about, about if not defunding the police at the very least, reimagining the police about how they serve the public. Because at the end of the day, and you look at this, this growing list of victims, these are victims who are being killed by public servants. Police are public servants. They are there to serve and protect. And of course, some of these incidents, you know, th there will be fatal encounters with police that we are never going to be able to avoid. But there are so many avoidable deaths in the list here. And I think that's the things we really have to focus on in the conversation when we talk about the police use of deadly force. It's those avoidable deaths we really need to focus on. Right. And this database includes these fatal encounters where police use force. So it's, it doesn't include cases where uh, there was a, you know, in custody death or self-inflicted wounds or, or accidental police caused deaths like a, like a car crash. For Correct. Example. Yeah. If, if the police were chasing a, a suspect in, this, in, a, in a vehicle and, the, and that suspect were to be involved in a traffic accident, that wouldn't be counted. These are directly at the hands of the police encounters with the police. You mentioned three cases at the beginning of this interview. One of them, Ijaz Chowdhury, um, uh, killed by police earlier this year. Yeah. And you spoke with Chowdhury's daughter. Given that her father struggled with mental illness, I'm curious to know what, what she thinks about what happened to her father, given the bigger picture here, given the, the trend that, that this database tracks across the country. Well, and I think, you know, this is, an, this is a really important case to focus on. When we talk about what, what I would say, in my opinion, are the avoidable deaths. Ijaz Chowdhury was 62 years old. He was a man who had grown up with um, struggling with schizophrenia. He had conspiracy theories. He, he had a huge fear of the police. So one day in June, he was having an episode, and his daughter, 19-year-old daughter, Nemra, was concerned about him. She made the phone call that would change everything forever. Um, I decided that it would be um, in his best interest um, to, for me to call the non-emergent ambulance line. And when I did that, um, I was, when I went downstairs, I was greeted by um, police officers and paramedics. And as we went upstairs and, you know, from what I can remember, I just feel like they just, treated my father as a threat from the beginning and never treated him as a being that was in need of help. And, and what's the important thing here is what happened, Josh, and, and, and this is the kind of thing I think we need to focus on. First, the police arrive with paramedics. Then more police arrive. Then after that, the tactical unit arrives. And he did open the door, and what he was greeted by is two police officers right in front of him, and so he closed the door and locked it. This is a 62-year-old frail man, according to his daughter, who has locked himself in his own apartment. He's not a threat to anybody. He's alone in an apartment. And if he's a threat to anyone, perhaps he was to himself. But at the end of the day, after the tactical unit arrives there... The situation just kept escalating. And when we told them that he was afraid of police officers, like, they just brought more police officers. His door is kicked down. He's, he's shot with a taser. He shot with rubber or plastic bullets, then eventually shot dead by police. Oh, 
this after his own daughter had called for help, saying that their fa- her father was in distress, hoping that somebody could take him to a hospital to get him help. And he ends up dead. This, to me, is the example of those avoidable deaths that I think police services need to focus on so we can bring that that number of victims on that deadly force list down and make sure that when when people call the police for help, it's help that they get and not another number and not another name on that list. Mark, thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks, Josh. Before I let you go today, an update on a case that we talked to Mark about. Ijaz Chowdhury, who was suffering from a mental health crisis, was shot and killed by a Peel Regional Police Officer last month. That officer has now refused to be interviewed by Ontario's police watchdog, the Special Investigations Unit, about what happened. He also won't submit a copy of his notes. Under the Police Services Act, officers under investigation can't be legally compelled to talk to the SIU. The investigation into Chowdhury's case continues. That's all for today. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to Frumper. On the Friday edition of After 9 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is Monday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also find Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to the panel portion of After 9 on this beautiful, sunny and hot summer day. Finally, we get summer this week and then then it's Christmas. It must be because hockey's back on. But anyways, uh, we are joined today by with our regular slate of panelists, Tracy Caligeros, Art Betke, Herb Martin, and Eric Allen. And this week, the, lots of news coming out of Ottawa with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, testifying before the Finance Committee regarding the uh, WE scandal. Uh, Art, let's go to you first. Uh, what's happened there and, uh, and, and what do you think about all this? Well, I think Mr. Trudeau is doing his usual. I mean, it's really no different for him than he, his first four years in office. Uh, he's blaming it on everybody else, and he's uh, uh, apologizing without taking any responsibility for himself. He threw the public service under the bus. He claimed it was all their fault, and that uh, they told him there were no other options, uh, nobody else that could handle it, even though multiple charities have come forward and said they were capable of handling it. And, uh, you know, he's uh, kind of in his testimony painted himself as the only responsible person that was involved at all. He wanted more vetting, and uh, he knew better, but he decided to go along with it. You know, it's it's typical uh, BS from him. I don't buy it a bit. Super. I don't know what happened there, but it sounded like we were in a 30s drama for a minute. There was a creaking door opening and closing. We apologize for that. Um, uh, Eric, what's what's your take on this? Do you think, you know, Trudeau's testimony uh, yesterday, uh, yeah, he, he basically said that uh, 
Uh, it was it was the public services decision, and uh, when he first heard about it, he sent it back saying uh, that there was uh, you know he wanted to make sure that everything was done uh, tickety boot. Yeah, and uh, you know, in, in actual fact, that's what he did. He sent it to him, and they sent it back. Said it was okay, and uh, you know, and then, then he turns around and says, "Well." There was nobody else. Really, there is nobody else that can do it. That organization that he'd set up or involved in years ago apparently isn't geared up to handle it. Uh, I don't know. The only thing they seem to be able to get him on now is uh, having known all this, what was happening in that, he should have recused himself from that cabinet meeting that made the decision to give it to we. He shouldn't have been there. and But he didn't do that. But other than that, it looks like he's going to uh, come out of this probably, you know, a big smile on his face. It looks like Morneau is in a worse position than Trudeau is because he actually paid back some money that uh, he received, and it's kind of it's not looking good for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tracy, uh, do you think that uh, that uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, did the right thing on this, uh, with the exception of perhaps recusing himself when it came to cabinet? Do you think he? Uh, should have uh, recused himself earlier or, or just uh, washed his hands to the deal? Well, for sure, I think he should have recused himself when the final discussion and decision came around. I uh, I don't know. I, I continually think he's his own worst enemy with some of these things. But generally speaking, it comes down to optics. Not always, but generally. And he puts himself into these positions that just provide fodder for the folks that are, as Eric put it, looking to get him on now. It is. I don't know. There's so much going on right now. This, to me, seems like a scandal that isn't and probably never should have been, and he could have avoided it by simply recusing himself in the end. He sent it back. He trusted the advice of the professional public service. I'm not sure what else we can ask of him, really. Uh, Herb, Herb, what's your take on this? Uh, do you think the uh, heads will roll. I know they're calling for uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau's resignation, or some feel that he will be the sacrificial lamb in this. Uh, do you think that uh, there will be some real repercussions in Ottawa? Well, I think there should be. Um, according to Canada Land, um, uh, the entire board of directors uh, uh, overseeing we resigned en masse in March. Uh, some of the replacements included that there were there were uh, that came on board afterwards included um, uh, one of the uh, the chief operators of we uh, his his high school gym coach. So that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, sound very good. And um, uh, it turns out that we has amassed uh, forty million dollars worth of real estate in Toronto. Uh, Again, kind of a strange thing for a, for a charity, I, I think. Um, if the public service vetted this and approved it, uh, there's some great incompetence happening. And um, I think uh, the, the way this has played out, actually, maybe the Liberals uh, have dodged a bullet. Uh, although Trudeau and Morneau, neither one of them looked very good after, after this whole fiasco, really. Mm-hmm. Um Art, uh, do you think uh, this could uh, spell the end for the We charity? And, and yeah, the, I think the the light is being shone on them. And I, I'm not going to say they're shady, but they're, it's not just a straight up charity like uh, 
you know, we see a lot of other uh, charities. They they do have a prof a for profit section and 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 that kind of thing. Do you think this spells major trouble for we? I've I've heard that they are claiming they're in trouble that we were destroying a charity here. I I really don't know these these outfits. You know, these pretty big outfits like that. They have a talent for survival anyway, and I I don't think. Uh, uh, they will disappear after all this fades away. I, I think they'll be around for a long time. The other thing is that uh, I'm not sure of this, but I heard that it wasn't actually the We Charity. It was some offshoot that was given the contract that had uh, no experience or of uh, anything like this before, something brand new. So I don't know what's all involved there. Maybe that part will be gone, but the basic We Charity itself, I think that will survive. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, one of the things that with this is this was a, a direct award. In other words, it didn't go out to tender. Um, do you think uh, uh, for something this size that it that it should have gone to tender, or, or I guess part of the rationale was uh, you know we're in the middle of a COVID uh, pandemic. We got to get these things out the door right away. Well, that's the excuse they're using anyway. I don't know how many years they had to get this right. And to sort of leave it, we have to do it right away now. Kind of a lame excuse. Uh, I think there's way too much government money that's being channeled into different organizations for them to run things. And uh, I think it's out of control. Like, we don't know where this money's going. Those people are, haven't been elected to look after our money. The government was elected to look after it. And uh, then you find out that all these different things are going on and... and uh, you know, something like the sale of BC Rail, you know, then they set up the Northern Initiative Trust and give them $450 million, and then they go out and start lending money to different communities and that. We didn't elect those people from Northern Initiative Trust to distribute our our tax dollars. That's the government's job. That's why we have a government. So I think they got to start getting away from this scenario. It's a, it's a thinly disguised way of sort of semi-privatizing a lot of public money. Um, following up on that, Tracy, do you think that uh, politicians should be more involved with the with the spending of dollars? Uh, you know, especially close to a billion dollars. Uh, however, I guess the flip side of that argument is uh, uh, politicians can't be. You have to hire people to do this work for you. Politicians, you don't want politicians to be involved in every spending decision that there is. Yeah, it, it's six to one, half dozen to the other. You're you're messed up no matter which way you go from the political standpoint because on the one hand, people want smaller government and they don't want government making decisions around things that can be seen to be a conflict of interest. But at the same time, they don't want government to give money to an arm's length charity that's audited every year to do the work of the people. You know, I, I, I think people, voters, need to start thinking about what it is they want from their government and then thinking that all the way through the, the chain. You know, you can't claim that you want less taxes and more services. You can't claim that you want smaller government, but yet government should be the one who's actually delivering on every program. The public service themselves said they had no capacity to deliver on this granting program within the time frame that was necessary in order to get money into the hands of students for this coming fiscal school year. So, I mean, I, I really feel like this whole thing is a, a big kerfuffle, and it's much to do about nothing. Uh, Herb, uh, what's, what's your take on that? And I, and I guess one of the, uh, 
uh, one of the, the the offshoots of this is the money is not going to be spent. Uh, Trudeau said this morning that it's likely that this money won't be spent at all. So I guess uh, for for politics, uh, people across the land will actually suffer because they're not going to benefit from this program. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wasted opportunity for sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I wonder, uh, Trudeau was, uh, you know, pretty keen on um, uh, resurrecting uh, Katimovic. That's something his father uh, originally uh, got going. Um, maybe, you know, you would think that something like that could have uh, could have administered uh, the program. It's, um, there's, there's lots of questions to be answered yet, and... Uh, I don't. I don't think this is going to be fatal to Trudeau, but uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's not looking great. Yeah. Uh, Art, what's what's your take on on Trudeau's on the optics for Trudeau? Do you think this is going to uh, uh, spell the end for him, and, and he should step down, or do you think he's going to weather the storm? I think he'll do just fine. You know, it's a bit of a storm now. His popularity is way down now, but it'll go up again. Uh, a long time till the next election, and by then this will be all forgotten. Yeah, right on. And on on that note, we will take a short break and come back to some more local news. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After Nine on ninety three point one CFIS FM. And thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, and we're back with the regular Friday panel, and we're moving closer to home. Uh, now with some local politics, City Council this week uh, um, maybe compromised with some of the minor hockey people and decided to keep the Kin 1 arenas open. That's three sheets of ice that will be run from one plant um, in order to get people on the ice and the aquatic centre will, will remain open. Uh, they had announced earlier that uh, all arenas, uh, arenas will remain closed indefinitely. Um, Eric, uh, let's go to you. Is this a compromise uh, uh, from the city, or did they cave to the minor hockey people, and uh, uh, do you think it's the right decision? Well, it seems like they, uh, they you know, they, they took the easier, softer way, so we'll satisfy half the people, which will make us look like we're doing something, and the other half can just take a back seat, I guess. I mean, it's a serious situation. If, it, if, it's, if it's not good enough to open up for half of it, then probably it shouldn't be for all of it. And you sort of have the same situation in, in the schools. They're like they say, going back to school in September. Well, that's, you know, I mean, you better know what you're talking about when you make those decisions because a lot of people's lives are going to be at stake over the long term. So it's not something to, you know, to get too politically with them, which is what's happening. And uh, I don't know. You know, we get caught up in this stuff like, Somehow or other, we can't survive or live without a swimming pool, or we can't survive or live without playing hockey for a few days. I don't know how much that's actual fact and how much of it is just hype. I mean, the numbers will show at the swimming pool. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people just won't go into a swimming pool under these conditions, and they don't know how many, so they, they may have no choice but to shut it down because they have no attendance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tracy, do you think this was a, a, a wise compromise on, on behalf of the city uh, um, to allow the kin, uh, kin centers to open and the aquatic center? I, uh, I hope that it's a wise compromise. I have to say that my gut tells me it's a mistake. Um, from a financial standpoint, 
There's no way that the individual users are paying anywhere close what it costs to actually utilize facilities when they're in full subscription. When we're only going to open them partially and we're going to reduce the number of users able to get into it, you're going to cut that even further. And I think from a fiscal standpoint, it doesn't make any financial sense to open up. From the health standpoint, I've been in those change rooms in the Kins, and I, I just don't know how you can possibly manage physical distancing within those spaces. And then you get the guys out on the ice, and the first thing they do is sit on the ice and then scrape it up with their skates. Nothing about this, me, says, yeah, that's a good safe activity during a pandemic. So I, I'm not the one making the decisions. I am not the one at the city who looked at the books or looked at the, the medical reports that related to the decision they were making. I hope that they did all of that and that they made a choice that will be best for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, Herb, uh, what do you think? Uh, is this, this a wise move on, on the part of the city? And, uh, you know, CN Center and, uh, and the Rolling Mix Concrete Arena are, are remaining closed for now, although both the Spruce Kings and the Cougars have, have said they have assurances from the city that should the their respective leagues get going, that the arenas will be open? Uh, is, this a, is this a good move? It's a kind of a risky move, and it's, um, uh, you know, uh, playing with people's health, really. We don't really don't know what the uh, what the implications with COVID are going to be. Um, like Tracy was saying, the, the change rooms are a problem. Um, you know, even playing on, on uh, games on ice is uh, it's potentially a problem. Uh, I think there there may be missing a uh, a good idea in in maybe funding the uh, the refrigeration of the uh, uh, ice oval. Um, there, there's in, within the ice oval they could put a couple of rinks uh, and have it outdoors, and you know that for what a million two million dollars, uh, that's something that that would be safe, uh, and uh, people could enjoy it. Uh, uh, you know throughout the winter um, and I think uh, you know keep some some people employed as well I, I wish they I wish they'd gone that way mm -hmm. that's a good idea herb yeah that's an, that's an interesting suggestion to keep the ice oval because that's the other the question come winter like what are we going to do with the ice oval uh, uh, it's certainly an outdoor one probably a little little easier uh, to maintain your distance in that um, Art, uh, one of the things I guess with uh, like there won't actually be hockey games being played on the ice, uh, and I'm assuming that players probably have to arrive uh, fully dressed and that kind of thing. Um, do you think that uh, will help and, and mitigate uh, uh, the concerns around opening the arenas? Oh, I think so, and I don't think there's all that much uh, concern really. Uh, Young people are very little affected by the COVID virus, and uh, uh, the adults will be the ones that are most concerned. Uh, young people will be, uh, I think they're, they say the flu is more damaging to young people than this COVID virus, so I think they'll be fine. Um, I don't think they work too much as transmitters to the adults either. It should be None fine. The, the biggest true. problem is, yeah. you know, the, the reason the city... Uh, shut it down in the first place was not just the COVID, but the the money savings. I mean, you know, people are demanding all this, and really, it's it's an extra. It's it's not a necessity, and uh, that's what problem. What happens when governments get in the habit of handing out uh, taxpayer money? The people who are on the receiving end just get right upset. They squeal when it's taken away, and you know, 
I live without skating in the summertime. I live without skating winter too, for that matter. But my kids, they, they didn't uh, go to indoor rinks or play hockey. They skated outdoors. So, yeah, it's, it's not a necessity. It's, it's a it's a ir- irresponsible spending uh, in times of tight financial constraints. Mm-hmm. Um- yeah, and I, I'm I'm not sure who the they were you referred to that saying that kids aren't as susceptible or or it's not as dangerous for kids. I'm I'm not sure that that's uh, that's a fact. <laughs> I, I I would uh, I would dispute that. But anyways, we're moving on. Uh, Eric, uh, uh, what's your what's your thoughts on uh, keeping the arenas open? Well, I don't. Uh, I, I think it all comes down to a health issue, and uh, anything other than that is. Uh, sort of a secondary thing it's um, you know we, we've got to start to come to terms with what it is we're doing with tax dollars like every day I drive by uh, the soccer fields on uh, I'll speak of there there's not a soul there and this is not just this year this is any year during the summer because they don't play hockey or soccer and it's just that limited time where they have the uh, period but we have maintenance people there all the time cutting grass doing this doing that and if you go to uh, the lawn bowling is the same thing they play once a week and every day or every other day you go by there there's somebody out cutting the grass city guy pickup truck or something and then horseshoe pits are the same thing so we got people looking after all this stuff but we don't have people using this and we don't have good numbers showing how they're using it and I'll give you an example of the new swimming pool or the old one downtown. Nobody can tell me how many people actually use that pool, individuals. All they do is give you the total number of people who went into there for the year. But a a lot of people that I know go almost every day for a year. And so they get counted 365 times or 300 times. And it doesn't take you long to see that it's just a limited number of people that are using the pool and we're paying, in this case, coming up, $35 million plus interest, plus, 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 for 800 or 1,000 people to go swimming. It doesn't make sense on any level. So a lot of it's about construction, spending tax dollars, and creating jobs in the short term. Mm-hmm. And if we can't shut something down for three or four weeks, I mean, high school picking berries for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and on, on, on that note, we'll take a short break and come back and, and talk more about uh, city finances. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips. Uh, we've been talking about city finances and the decision to open the pools. But uh, one of the other things that happened on Monday night uh, at City Council that uh, probably didn't get as much fanfare as the pools was City Manager Kathleen Soltis um, uh, asked direction for Council to prepare budgets for next year containing a 0 or 1 or 2 uh, percent increase. Uh, she presented a report saying that if the status quo remains regarding COVID and, and arena closures and all that kind of stuff, they were looking at probably a 5.3% tax increase uh, to maintain the status quo, and that's with uh, uh, facilities closed. Uh, Tracy, what do, you, what do you think about that, and, and, and do this, does the city, or where can the city go uh, with that? Uh, uh, some tough decisions for council coming forward. 
yeah, it's a brutal thing. When you have to cut a budget that is already sort of a zero-based budget, it's never an easy task. And I, I really think that 5%-ish isn't a crazy increase given the added cost surrounding uh, COVID mitigation. So it's, it's a nasty spot to be in. I mean, at a certain point, you're either cutting services or you're cutting people, or both. Um, and we've seen some of that this week with two um, fairly senior positions at the city shut down tied to the fact that the centers are staying shut. So I, I you know, we're, we need to think broadly about what we're prioritizing. You know, I, I was thinking about it in our last segment there where we were talking about rec centers. And I mean, they're an important quality of life place for people to go and exercise and do the things they need to do. But schools are the key thing we need to get open. And until we've got community spread down to virtually nothing, it's really not safe to open the schools. So prioritizing bars and restaurants and shopping in some of the, the more outlier um, type facilities. I think those are the kinds of priority questions that individuals have to be faced with. What's more important? School, clearly. And the city's being faced with exactly the same situation. If people are adamant that they're not okay with a 5% increase, then we need to cut. And that cutting is going to hit things like clearing windrows at the end of driveways during snow plowing season. Like there's there's very few places for the city to go to find that money. Yeah, uh, Herb, uh, do you think the city uh, uh, will have the the wisdom of Solomon moving forward and, and can manage this? And and uh, do you have any idea what a, even a two percent increase budget uh, uh, would would mean next year, given that uh, we have closures and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, there's some pretty frightening numbers coming out of the states. I mean, they. I figure on an annualized basis, the American economy has dropped, uh, the GDP has dropped 33%. Uh, that was, that came out yesterday, 32%. So that's, uh, that would indicate some pretty hard times coming up unless uh, this COVID thing you know, resolves itself fairly quickly. Uh, we should be planning for zero increases. Uh, people uh, uh, don't need tax increases at this point. Um, I think another hard look has to take place with this, uh, the new pool, a $35 million, $36 million facility that uh, uh, really is not going to be used by very many people. Uh, that's just an extravagance that uh, no one can afford, and that should be put on hold. Uh, some of that, uh, you know, uh, some of that funding could possibly put, be put towards um, uh, the salaries uh, to try and keep people employed. Uh, but yeah, no, things things should be starting to, people should start panicking a little bit, I would think, at this point and, uh, and really plan for no increases. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, uh, is, it, is it too late to, to pull the plug on the new pool? And uh, I guess one of the other questions with that is the $10 million federal and provincial grant money, uh, whether that uh, will actually go to reduce the costs of of how much we have to borrow, or whether they'll add it on? I suspect uh, it, the $10 million grant money will reduce the amount the citizens of the, or the taxpayers of the city have to pay, but still, it, it, we're going to have to pay too much. That was something, you know, they had torn down the hotel, they had this bare lot, they could have just shut that right down. That The fact that they're going ahead with it is totally irresponsible. This is a kind of a situation where the city should be looking at cutting their budget, not increasing it. We, The taxpayers just can't afford this. I mean, where do they think the money comes from? The government's, uh, and no government has any money. 
So when times get tough like this, the governments need to cut back. And I know it's politically difficult to do, but uh, when you get the tax bill, you're going to notice it. And a lot of people are hurting right now. The economy locally is hurting. That's why the government or the, or the city government is uh, so short of money. Well, when you're short of money, you cut your spending. That's common sense. That's, uh, it's going to hurt us. And it, it makes, you know, the budget should have zero increase. They should work a budget out so the, there is no increase in taxes. And uh, if that means cutting things, well, you cut things. Mm-hmm. Eric, what do you what do you think on the on the pool? Is it is it too late? And and should the ten million dollars go to reduce the borrowing costs? Well, I would say that yeah, it's going to go ahead. I mean, they they had plans of building that pool there probably ten years ago, and we don't get all the information, so there's nothing going to stop it now. People voted, they had the referendum, they got the okay to borrow the money. They're going to build a pool. The idea that you know all these people downtown are going to go swimming—that's just. That's just hogwash. But anyway, the $10 million now, when we try to stop them from borrowing that $32 million on that last fiasco they had, borrowing fiasco, one of the indications was that they had to borrow the money for the pool, but they didn't make an application to get uh, money from the uh, provincial and federal governments. And if they got that, it would reduce our cost of the pool by $10 million or something <clears throat> for the borrowing. Now we're into double speak. Well, we're not sure, you know. We'll have to have another conversation and look at that, see what we can do with this $10 million. You know, we're, we're, that's a discussion we'll have in the fall. Well, we already had that discussion, more or less, and the indications were that it would go to cut back on the borrowing. So we should drop down now by $10 million. $10 million over 20 years save us $5 million. So if they want to save money, that's what they should do instead of playing these silly little games. And, and, of course, at the end of the thing, they said, well, you know, the pool is good for uh, downtown, it's good for creating jobs. But they didn't say that's why they wanted to borrow the money. They didn't say they wanted to borrow the money, $35 million, to create jobs for the people of Prince George. So. Yeah. And uh, that brings us to the end of our time here on After 9. So tune in again next week when we will be back and dissect the issues of the day.